Good morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8? If you don't have your Bibles, you can grab one of the blue pew Bibles under the chairs in front of you. And um, if I recall, Acts 8 is around 748, if you need some help finding it. We're in the middle of our sermon series on the New Testament book of Acts. As we've been saying, the series is called Jesus Part 2, represented by the graphic, because Jesus has ascended back into heaven. He's at the Father's right hand. He's no longer here on earth, and yet he is still directing the affairs of all of history and using us as his actors in the real-life drama of salvation. The only way God could use fallible, weak, sinful instruments like us to accomplish anything is by planting the power of his Holy Spirit within us. And Today's passage marks a turning point in the unfolding drama that Acts represents. Jesus, working through his people, begins to go viral. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. And many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic, but when they believed Philip... As he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, give us spirit eyes to see and apply these truths that you have preserved for our benefit. This dramatic account of first century early church living, Persecution still happens today, Lord. Guard us from naively thinking that it is a removed reality. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was uh, preparing this message on Friday afternoon, it occurred to me, I could either keep you all for an hour in a sermon or uh, save some for next week. I think I made the wise decision. What do you think? And uh, mark this date, if you're keeping score, this will be a two-point sermon, not a three-point. Uh, I take some heat for being a, a man of 
of habit. Uh, today, you're only getting two points, all right? Um, two questions we'll ask. Where are you, God? And secondly, how do you work today? Where are you, God? If you were one of these early disciples, in Acts chapters 1 through 3, you would be on cloud 9. The risen Savior Jesus has poured out the gift of His Holy Spirit. That Spirit is empowering not only the original apostles, but the disciples at large to accomplish amazing things. They are demonstrating that the kingdom of God has come, that Jesus is alive through miraculous signs, um, healing the sick, casting out evil spirits. They are demonstrating the radical unity that belongs to the family of God in renewed community. But then, chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John get arrested. Uh Uh-oh. No problem. They're let go after interrogation the next day. Close call. But then, chapter 5, many of the apostles, perhaps all 12 of them, are rounded up and thrown in jail. That's not supposed to happen. What's going on? The authorities are, are rising up in opposition to the movement of Jesus. But then an angel shows up, saves the day, orchestrates a a jailbreak, and they're out preaching the good news again, and confidence is building because even uh, the authorities, with all the power that they have, cannot stop this movement of the gospel. But then chapter 6 and 7 happen. Stephen, one of the seven servants raised up to do diaconal ministry, is arrested, and he's brought before this religious council and he lets them have it. And he pays the price when they drag him out of the city and an angry religious mob stones him to death. This isn't supposed to happen. Jesus is the victor over sin and death. Those who follow him are to experience life in abundance. And the hope that what happened to Stephen was just a blip on the radar screen, was just a bump in the road, is dashed when chapter 8 rolls around, because on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, and Saul, who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, giving his approval, starts going from house to house, dragging people out of their houses because they follow after this Jesus and throwing them in jail. Where are you, God? How can you let this happen? The people of God, the people of faith, have thought those thoughts, asked those questions, prayed those fears for all of history. And I, and I think many of us today would, would be able to easily say, yeah, I've I, I prayed that prayer. Where are you, God? How can you let this happen? No doubt Joseph did back in Genesis when his brothers sold him into slavery, and he ends up in a foreign land called Egypt. And there he's wrongly accused, he's thrown in prison, and he would have rotted there except for his ability to interpret dreams and God's perfect timing in enabling him to rise back to prominence as the second-in-command of Pharaoh. And years later, his brothers, who sold him into slavery, travel down to Egypt to buy grain because the land is experiencing a severe famine. And they come before him not knowing who he is, and he's got this wonderful opportunity for revenge to get back at his brothers because of their betrayal all those years past. But instead, Joseph, by God's grace, speaks comforting, assuring words that 
can impact us even today in the face of even evil intentions. He says, Genesis 50, verse 20, to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When Joseph prayed, where are you, God? The answer was always, I've never left you. And the scripture account of Joseph's life is peppered with these little references that you might miss unless you're looking for them. Being sold into slavery, being carted off into prison, being left to rot, the peppered phrases are, and God was with Joseph. Where are you, God? I've never left you. If we turn back to Acts chapter 8, here in verses 1 through 3, the account that we see is devastating. Everything that was built up by these apostles is destroyed. The the movement of the gospel that was gaining steam is now possibly turning into an epic dud. Just a footnote in history. This movement that was a flash in the pan and then was no more, like so many other movements following after so-called messiahs and revolutionaries. But the rest of Acts shows us that the, the reality of Joseph's statement is still in effect, along with the words that he speaks before and after verse 20. He says, don't be afraid. And we see that reality here in Acts. Not that God actually speaks that, but the truth is still there. Don't be afraid, despite this persecution. Why? First of all, because Jesus is risen And he promises new life to all who trust in him. Stephen will live again. His stoning death is not the final word. And secondly, because God has a plan to use this persecution to make the gospel go viral throughout the world. Verse 4 says, those who had been scattered, bad result, preached the word wherever they went. Good outcome. That's what God does. He turns Good Fridays into Easter Sundays. He turns darkness into light. He turns mourning into hope. He turns persecution and even death into opportunity for new life. Those who had been scattered, they never would have chosen that. Preached the word wherever they went. Back in Acts chapter uh, 1, Jesus had made this promise to his disciples. Before he ascended back into heaven, he said, um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There are three spheres, if you will, starting at the epicenter where the New Testament church was birthed at Pentecost, Jerusalem, and then spreading outwardly. Starting here in Acts chapter 8 and extending into Acts chapter 12, we see Judea and Samaria impacted by the gospel. And then in Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and, and, and Paul gets his new name after he's converted to faith in Jesus. They're sent out on the first missionary journey. The gospel begins to reach the ends of the earth, at least uh, as far as it was known among first century people. And the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome, bad outcome, awaiting trial, and it's over. The the story is not resolved. We don't know what happens to Paul because it doesn't matter. The, The reality is Jesus is still directing the affairs of history 
especially his church, and he's using us as the actors. And that story that uh, was left, dot, 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 end of Acts chapter 28, is still being told throughout history as God uses fallible servants like us filled with the Spirit to accomplish his goals. Where are you, God? Never left you. How can you let this happen? Joseph said it best. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God's purposes are not so much concerned about your life of comfort and ease so much as he is concerned about your eternity and your thriving as he's perfectly designed you in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. The calling to follow after a suffering servant named Jesus involves suffering as part of discipleship. We don't go looking for it, but we know that uh, Scripture, for example, says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why would we think that prosperity gospel has any truth to it? That if you have enough faith, you're going to avoid all that stuff. You're going to be healthy. You're going to make a lot of money. Your, your, your way is going to be greased before you. No, that wasn't the path of Jesus, and neither it is, is it the path of his followers. Even if we know these things, even if you're familiar with the account of Joseph, you know, adversity turned into uh, triumph or victory, reconciliation. It all works out in the end. Even if you know some early church history and the, the truth of one of the early church fathers who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's fertilizer, if you will, as graphic as that may be, for the growth of the kingdom of God. And even if you connect that reality to some uh, example in modern church history, for example, um, the explosive growth of Christianity in China in the 20th century under extreme oppression, despite that circumstance, God caused Christianity to, to blossom. We still don't know today the extent of, of that impact in the face of persecution. Even if we know some of these things, why is it that all it takes to ruin your day is a spilled cup of coffee on your pants? Or an extra 10 minutes spent in the tunnel getting into Port Authority? Or a, a, a day when you're sneezing because of allergies or your stomach is upset and you boil over in frustration? You lash out, you throw a pity party, you, you run to the escapes into pleasure, whatever that may be in your life all without any threat of being arrested for your faith, let alone losing your head. Let me offer you two thoughts. One is this. In our lives, there is not enough living in light of spiritual and heavenly realities. And there's far too much living in light of and making too much of circumstance in the here and now. Not enough living in light of spiritual and heavenly realities. Too much living in light of what just happened to me this morning. Silly little things. It, if you hardly open the Scriptures, if you don't carve out intentionally the time in your day to deeply reflect on the things of Christ, if you don't look heavenward because you're looking screenward, at a digital device, if you, if you don't think eternally because you're barraged digitally, then you're never going to grasp 
or, or, or catch this glimpse of God's greater purposes like Stephen is able to. At the, as he's getting killed by a mob for preaching the gospel, if, if there ever was a time for you, for, for you to think, Stephen, you know, that now is the time for that prayer. Where are you, God? And how can you let this happen? Are you going to intervene? I, I don't have much time left. The mob is chasing me. The rocks are starting to come my way. That's the circumstance. Stephen doesn't react as most of us would react. He looks heavenward. And the end of chapter 7 tells us that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, saw heaven open and the glory of God and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw with spiritual eyes. I don't think the explanation is that the Holy Spirit handed to Stephen this spiritual telescope and trained it at the right you know, quadrant of the, the, the universe so that he could see through all of the galaxies into the far reaches of the cosmos and peek into heaven. Nor do I think Stephen found the right wardrobe in the English manner and peered through the cracks of the back of the wardrobe behind the furs into Narnia, and he glimpsed heaven that way. I, I think Stephen glimpsed heaven uh, more along these lines. If you hike to the top of the mountain before dawn and it's shrouded in mist and you can't see a thing other than the rock that you're standing on and five feet around you and you pull out your trail mix and you wait for the sunrise and as the sun comes up, slowly the warmth of the sun burns away the mist and there before your eyes is the glorious reality that was there all along. You just couldn't see it. You didn't have the perspective. The valley, the lush valley, the the extending mountain range, the blue sky, the clouds hovering over the peaks. The reality was there all along. You didn't have the perspective to notice it. And the the heavenly reality, if you will, is, is around us. It's not up there. It's not at the other end of the cosmos. We need spiritual eyes to perceive the things of eternity. One day, those two dimensions will become one, and there will be no veil between them. There will be no um, opaque, you know, um, cataract-like uh, spiritual substance on your eyes that prevents you from seeing heavenly realities and earthly realities. They'll all be one. Stephen saw it with the eyes of the Spirit. You've got to climb the mountain if you want to see that kind of perspective. You need to cultivate that perspective with spirit-filled eyes and a Jesus-saturated heart by reflecting on the things of God, by meditating on them, by giving attention to these things so that you can know in the storm of life, God is always there. He's never left your side so that you can know in the storm of life that despite the bad circumstances, being scattered through persecution, his purposes are not thwarted. They're being fulfilled despite what you see around you. That's the first thought. We live too much in light of circumstance and not enough in light of spiritual and heavenly realities. The second thought is this. I wonder if the disciples in the early church were getting too comfortable. I wonder if they were enjoying um, the influence and status and the comfort of scale 
more people coming to faith in Jesus. It's, it was no longer as much of a fringe thing of uh, minority people. Uh, prominent people in the city of Jerusalem were coming to faith. A large number of priests we read last week uh, in Acts chapter 6 are coming to faith. People of influence. It's no longer this kind of weird thing where you're looked down on. I, I wonder if GRC, if we can relate to um, the danger of growing too comfortable, of enjoying church growth. You know, as much as we're praying and looking for a new space um, to make a permanent home, this is a nice, comfortable place. The AC's on. Um, our bills are paid. We just saw last week that the, the budget's looking good for the coming year. We have wonderful ministries. And we could grow complacent, enjoying the trappings of a comfortable life. I wonder if that characterized the early church beginning to think, I got this God, you know, I, I preach the gospel, I wave my hand, and you do marvelous things, and people come running. They want to hear more about what I have to say. And God, to continue to use them effectively, had to scatter them. And he used the evil intentions of men like Saul for his purposes. He needed to get them out of their comfortable lives, to let go of their security blankets, and we need to realize that living as a follower of Jesus Christ means growing in our understanding that our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes in Philippians, that we are aliens and strangers in the land. This world is not our home. We're sojourners, pilgrims on the way. And lest we get too comfortable, God sometimes disrupts us, scatters us, brings um, unpleasant unexpected things into our lives. And our knee-jerk reaction is, where are you, God? How can you let this happen? When God all along is saying, I needed to do that. I need to scatter you in order to use you, in order to let you experience the fullness of my plan. Can you be content wherever you are? You know, I happen to be a Jersey boy. And I don't love New Jersey. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't go evangelizing New Jersey when I, when I meet people from other states. And, and I hear a lot of Jersey hating, you know. Can you be content here with a high cost of living, with a crowded Route 4, with uh, people who are climbing over one another to get higher up the left? Can you be content where God has placed you? Maybe He has scattered you here to New Jersey to use you to get you out of your comfort zone? Can you be content however God provides, whether you have much or little, whenever um, He jolts your system, whatever the cost may be that is uncomfortable and painful? The scattering of the disciples led to world-changing impact because God's people went to new and strange, uncomfortable places preaching the Word of God wherever they went. A second question, how how do you work today, God? From the beginning of the book of Acts, I've mentioned a couple of times that not everything we find in Acts is normative for the church today. Not everything is is supposed to be this model, this example to be emulated and followed to a T. And um, let, let me give you a couple of examples. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles, while they're waiting for the Spirit to come at Pentecost, realize, you know what? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, 
um, he's gone, and we only have 11 apostles. We need to um, decide who's going to be the 12th to round out this number. There's a symbolism of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and in God's wisdom, they um, needed to figure out who should be selected. They cast lots to figure out which man to choose. It was likely a pattern after Old Testament decision-making, one of the ways they would make decisions. And casting lots would involve marking little stones that would be piled into this container, and they'd shake it up, and they'd pour it out to figure out which decision to make. You know what it reminded me of? Um, The evening lottery. You ever watch Wheel of Fortune? In one of the commercials, or, or, or Jeopardy, sometimes we catch... You know, in one of the commercials, the lady saunters up, there's ping pong balls, and, you know, the, the vacuum thing is going. Our, our first number is six. Our second number is, casting lots kind of reminds me of that. Isn't that strange? At the beginning of the, the book of Acts, one of the most important decisions the apostles are making, which man is going to be the 12th replacement for Judas, they're playing with ping pong balls to make that decision. In God's wisdom, that's what they did. But, you know, we don't do that. (laughs) Nobody's arguing that this is normative because this is an example in the Bible. If if we ran session meetings like that, man, we'd be out of there by like 8.30. You know, we have to make a decision. How many balls do we need? Four. Okay, start the machine. Steve, pick a number. (laughs) Okay, we're done. Uh, We don't do that partly because we never see that technique for decision-making used ever again in the New Testament. It is one of those unique events during a unique stage in salvation history that is not to be replicated. Not everything in Acts is meant to be normative. Here's another example I've mentioned briefly uh, over the past couple of months. Um, in, um, in the beginning of Acts, especially, we read about all these miraculous healings. And in Acts chapter 3, for example, Peter heals on demand. He doesn't ask God. He doesn't spend the night in prayer. He doesn't say, Lord, if it be your will, this man I am laying my hands on, restore him to health. He says, get up, take up your mat and walk with the confidence that God is going to enable him to be this conduit of healing. But by the end of Acts, we don't see that much at all. And the Apostle Paul, who worked lots of miracles, um, by the end of his ministry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he mentions a sick friend named Trophimus who can't travel with him. We say, why, why didn't Paul just say, be healed? Let's go. <laughs> I need you, right? I, we have work to do. This is a, what could be more important than the Apostle Paul going on another missionary journey with his assistant by his side? No, he had to leave him home because he was sick. The healing is not normative. Can God heal today? I absolutely think he can. But it's not this pattern that is just to be replicated because we see it in the Bible. The stuff that happens in Acts, much of it is unique because of the stage in redemptive history. We find something really unique in Acts chapter 8. I just read it. It's the end of the passage. And verses 15 through 17 are used by some Christians to teach that the baptism of the Spirit is separate from conversion. And so a person needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ, be baptized, and then pray and um, wait for God to give a spirit baptism, a second blessing. And if we want to sort this out, we need to start by understanding what a Jew would think of a Samaritan in the first century. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Arab, 
and half Jewish, and they were despised by both people groups. That's not hard for us to understand today, is it? They were despised for their racial, cultural mix, and they were despised for their religious mix because the religious Jews felt like the Samaritans had taken from Judaism and adulterated it by mixing it with practices of other religions. No one liked the Samaritans. They um, originated when the kingdom of Assyria destroyed Jerusalem and carted off many of the Israelites to captivity in uh, modern-day uh, Iran, you know, the, the, the area of Persia, leaving behind the lower class because they figured, well, what harm could they do? And those lower-class Jews, without the guidance of their leaders, without necessarily an education, intermarried with the local um, um, citizens and sort of came up with their own system. They even had a, their, their own temple uh, for, for worship. So in verse 14, when the apostles heard in Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they were astonished. And they sent apostles as ambassadors to investigate, none less than Peter and John. The fuller reaction that's not recorded for us, but that we could be confident in is the, the apostles met together. There was gossip and then hubbub and then a meeting called, and they said, God has saved Samaritans? No, no, it can't be. It can't be true. Half-breeds? The despised? Um, you know, um, I was going to use a word I shouldn't with kids in the room. But, um, so they, they send Peter and John to investigate, to authenticate. And when they find out that it indeed is true, that Samaritans have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they marvel. And they provide the gift of the Spirit as authentication that, yes, indeed, a major cultural and geographic and especially religious barrier has fallen. They never would have thought. Um, this is extraordinary. This is unique. In contrast, if we turn back to Acts chapter 2, this is ordinary, and this is promised as a pattern. The end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, his first sermon ever, the people say, what shall we do? How do we respond to this? Peter says, repent and be baptized, chapter 2, verse 38. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what's normal. That's what's expected. That's what's promised. Believe, be baptized, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why does it happen separately, requiring Peter and John to travel up from Jerusalem to Samaria? Because God saved even the Samaritans? They couldn't believe it, and the apostolic affirmation was required. There are two other places that we see this two-stage belief in Christ and gift of the Holy Spirit, and each is uh, in a similar groundbreaking context where the, the Jewish Christians would have said, what? No, 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 it can't be true. The first one is in Acts chapter 10, and it actually happens in the reverse. Peter is um, sent through a vision to Cornelius' household. He's a, he's a, a Roman soldier, um, and he's fully Gentile. It ap actually happens backwards. A spirit comes upon the household of Cornelius, and the disciples are shocked, including Peter. And it, and it says in chapter 10, verse 45, 
um, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. You see the the the, the presupposition, the pre the the, the, um, the assumptions that the Jewish Christians had ingrained in them. These cultural prejudices had to be peeled back layer by layer. First, the Samaritans never thought half-breeds. And, and then the Gentiles on the outskirts of Judea and Samaria, up the coast in Caesarea on the Mediterranean. Wow. Um, and then we get to Acts chapter 19, the third example of separation between faith in Jesus Christ and um, spirit baptism. Actually, it's a little bit different. Uh, Paul is ministering in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and um, Ephesus was a center of worship for Roman emperors and uh, Greek pagan gods. People were described in Acts chapter 19 there as disciples, even though they had not heard about Jesus. What does Paul do? He preaches Christ. They come to faith. He baptizes them, and in the very next verse, with no delay, the Holy Spirit comes upon them as Paul lays hands and confirms their faith with apostolic authority. Even the Gentiles. Unbelievable. That's it. Three exceptions in three extraordinary groundbreaking contexts, not normative for the church today. These examples are following this outward progression that started in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Right? Get back to that verse. Started in Jerusalem, the epicenter, the, the birth of the New Testament church, Judea and Samaria. Our text here, Acts 8, Acts 10, Cornelius, up the coast, even to the ends of the earth. Ephesus was in the Roman province of Asia, it, and it ended up becoming a beachhead for Paul and his missionary compatriots to reach to the, the uh, furthest extent of the Roman Empire. The gospel is expanding through the perfect plan of God. Let's not forget how this worldwide impact started. A servant named Stephen faithfully preached the gospel and paid the price of his life, stoned to death outside the city. You know, lots of people have died for their beliefs. Um, An ancient example uh, occurred about 200 years before Christ. A Syrian king occupied Jerusalem desecrated the temple, forced the Jews to eat pork, which was not kosher, and put many of them to death. And many historical accounts, most of them, describe the dying words of the Jews that cursed their executioners. God's power will torture you and your descendants. You'll pay the price for this. In modern times, we don't need to look far to read about suicide bombers who defiantly shout, in Arabic, that God is great as they murder innocent people. What about Stephen? How does he die? He shouts with a loud voice, with his last breath, a prayer, pleading for mercy for his murderers. Now that's different. Now that is holy, it's set apart, it's distinct. There's a contrast. The word martyr means witness in, in the Latin, uh, one who testifies at a trial. The question is, what, 
in Stephen's martyrdom, in his death, what did his death testify about? What did his death affirm to be true? His death, his martyrdom said this, the only God who saves is the only God who would take upon himself human flesh and die as a substitute for sinful people like you and like me. Neither religiosity nor ideology can save. Only the humility that comes from a dependent faith in this Jesus, God and man, perfect, obedient son and substitute lamb on the cross, only that Jesus can save. And this is the only reality that when it goes viral through the people of God who open our mouths proclaiming this best of news to the world, only this reality can change the world as you're scattered, as you're disrupted, as you're uncomfortable, continuing to fulfill the perfect purposes of our God. Let's pray. Lord, I confess for myself, I think I confess for many of us, so we so easily whine about life not being the way we want it. We whine when you give us gifts. We whine that they're not enough. They're not the way we wanted them. We take for granted so many things that we have in this country when, at least so far, we have religious freedom. At least so far, I can preach the gospel without worrying about being thrown in jail. Father, in our minor scattering, cause us to be bold in being available to you as your servants and preaching the word wherever we go. And if that day comes, Lord, when there is oppression and persecution, when our freedoms are nibbled away at and eroded, grant us strength to remember, Lord, that this is not a strange occurrence that caught you by surprise. But even that scenario you can use for your glorious salvation purposes. So we praise you, sovereign King, in Jesus' name, amen.